0: This episode of the LARB Radio Hour is supported in part by the California Arts Council, a state agency. Learn more at www.arts.ca.gov. Hello, and welcome to the LARB Radio Hour, brought to you by reader-supported LA Review of Books. I'm your host, editor-at-large, Kate Wolf, and I'm joined in the studio today by Medea Ocher, LARB's managing editor. Hi, Kate. Hey, Medea. So this week, we're listening to a conversation I had with Susan Strait about her new memoir, In the Country of Women.
1: Does she live in a country of women?
0: (laughs) Yeah, she kind of does. She has three daughters, I believe. She has a very large extended family. And that's what the book is about, in part. It's her own story and then looking back at members of that extended family and their history. And these women are really impressive, what they dealt with, what they endured, how they flourished. Even just alone on on the amount of children a lot of them had, I was feeling rather humbled.
1: Kate, if you could
0: literally inhabit
1: a country only of women, Mm, would you do it? Yes. Oh. I mean... Are it's there only
0: women? Can I watch images of men? On Absolutely. A, okay.
1: Yeah, men can visit. It's just like any other country. Oh, they men need can a, visit. Yeah,
0: yeah. I mean, you have sounds you need like a, passport. a fantasy land. It is for sure a fantasy. So I land. can get some <laughs> visits from men, but then yeah,
1: they can visit. It's just like any other country. It would just
0: otherwise all the citizens are women and it's run by women. Okay. Yeah, I'd sign up. Yeah. Would you? Absolutely. Definitely. I wonder how many women would if you asked them. I, I would say seventy percent.
1: I think so too. That's fine, that's the 70 we want. <laughs>
0: exactly. <laughs> okay. Okay. Susan Strait's book is is not about this at all, but but it's a fun exercise. But, but it inspired the conversation. So that's great. And it's a wonderful book. And I actually really enjoyed this conversation. She's a very, very powerful woman, conversationalist and and author. So I was lucky to talk to her.
1: Okay, let's listen to your conversation. Great.
0: Happy to have Susan Strait here in the studio with us today. Susan has published eight novels, including High Wire Moon and A Million Nightingales. She's been a finalist for the National Book Award and received the Robert Kirsch Award for Lifetime Achievement from the Los Angeles Times Book Prizes, the O. Henry Prize, the Land and Literary Award for Fiction, and a Guggenheim Fellowship. She's here to talk about her new book, which is a memoir called In the Country of Women. Thanks, Thanks so much for being here. Thanks for having me. So I want to talk about the form of this book because there are so many different characters here. And it seems like the form must have come early on, I would imagine, to figure out a way to tell so many stories, because you have your own kind of history and you intersperse it with different members of your extended family. And it also takes occasionally in the form of a letter to
2: your daughters. So talk about how you decided to structure the book. The structure is always the hardest, whether it's fiction or nonfiction. And because this memoir was so big, we couldn't even include a family tree because there are too many people in the family. For some people, they came from 11 kids and then they had 11 kids and then their descendants had six kids and now we had three kids. So the structure is actually one thing I love to think about looking at all the different novels and memoirs that I love reading. Like how did someone structure them? I really love Trevor Noah's uh, Born a Crime. That was a great book. Everyone in my family read it. I got it for my kids for Christmas and then all the husbands and my ex-husband and everyone read it. And for this book, chronological order would be deadly as well as dull because you start with people who arrived here in America in, in the early 1800s, whether they were enslaved or whether they were immigrants. So as it turned out, I was writing pieces of the book and what brought it together were those little interspersing things, but the talisman turned out to be the bullet. So the organizing structure was the idea of American bullets and violence. Because this is a memoir about women moving ever west, not with men, but almost always without men, fleeing men, I was shocked by how in both my black extended family and my white biological family, one or two bullets were the defining factor that shaped a woman's entire life. So it turned out to be the first bullet, the second bullet, Finds bullet, Jenny's bullet, when she killed a man, the bullet that my grandfather threatened everyone else in the tiny little dance hall at the one-room schoolhouse with, which is why my grandmother married him, because mm-hmm. no one else would dance with her, because he threatened them all with death. But it turned out to be the bullet and then my children. So you mentioned violence as this through line in these stories, and that you
0: come from a family of mixed heritage tell us more just for listeners
2: who haven't read the book about some of the women that you uncovered in your family. The frontispiece shows my mother-in-law, Alberta Sims. We just had our giant family reunion, annual family reunion on Saturday at Riverside's Fairmont Park, and it was 105 degrees, and we were there for five hours, and there were about 150 of us. And when people saw the book, I had my first copies. They saw this picture of my mother-in-law, Alberta, uh, dressed up for a white glove event, and a lot of My female relatives cried. I wrote the book really to honor my mother-in-law, but her mother was orphaned at age five. The first woman was in that family. Washington Thomas was brought enslaved. His daughter, Mary, had three kids and she was walking on a dirt road with her five-year-old daughter, Daisy, and she was run down purposefully by two young white men in Sunflower County, Mississippi. And she threw her daughter up onto the road bank And so that daughter, Daisy, at five years old, was then alone. And my mother-in-law told me those stories while I was nursing my own daughter. Between teaching at UCR, I would drive right down the street to my mother-in-law's house. She watched my kids. So that is one story, is the story of Daisy Carter. And then on my father-in-law's side, the first woman was Fine, who was born in 1869, And her mother died when she was five. Her mother had been formerly enslaved and her father was a free Cherokee man run off by Andrew Jackson's vigilantes. And Fine was also orphaned at age five or six. And so looking at these two heroic women, they ended up moving ever west. Fine moved from Tennessee to Denton, Texas, to Tulsa, Oklahoma. And then her daughter, Jenny, who's another pivotal woman, left home at 14 and worked as a prostitute when she was very young and she was raped by a drunk white man one night and she shot him between the eyes. She ended up in Los Angeles. She had a house at 21st and Central in historic South Central Los Angeles and that place became the way station for all of her half-sister's children and that's how my father-in-law General Sims II got to Los Angeles those were the women who were resilient enough to cross the country by themselves or with their children in tow and to make their way ever west. You know, these stories of the women in the book are so...
0: You introduced the concept in the introduction of the hero. And of course, they're nothing short of heroic and the things they've gone through or that they went through as someone who lives an easy life in comparison and still finds a lot of reason to complain. It's startling, these hardships that they endured. And so I'm wondering... In your family, in your extended family, you know, the purpose of telling these stories, for instance, in my own family, family lore is not something that comes up that often and we don't talk very often about our ancestors, but it seems that in your extended family, they are ever-present. And I'm wondering if you can point to a reason why in terms of holding them up as models or to kind of give your any hardship that you were going through context. I mean, why do you think these stories we're told so often?
2: In the Black oral tradition, there has always been the griot, the storyteller, and that might be different for families like yours or other families, but because I live a mile from where I was born, I've always been surrounded by women who are storytellers, whether they're white, Black, Mexican-American. Everyone sits on my porch and tells stories. My children find it hilarious. My three daughters are grown now, but they joke that we can't even go to Target because we'll be there for two hours because somebody will start talking to mom and then, you know, It'll be a two hour story. People tell me their life stories constantly, whether they're related to me or not. But for our family, from the very first moment that my mother in law invited me in, which is kind of the beginning of this memoir, I was 16 and she said, Come inside and make you a plate. And there I was in the kitchen. And my own mom is Swiss. So I was taught to clean, not just wash the dishes, but you clean the whole kitchen every single time. So I wiped down the counters and was cleaning the sink. And she said, Well, somebody raised you, right? And then she launched into a story. And that is at the heart of a giant extended family like ours. But think about it back in when Roots came out, the notion of who was the griot in the village that Kunta Kinte left. Oral storytelling is a huge tradition when you come from a fairly poor background. Mm -hmm. You're not going to read about yourself. So you always tell those stories to make sure everyone knows. So they weren't told as prescriptive or anything else. They were just told to honor people who came before you and my girls who are 30 and 28 and just about to turn 24 have heard all of these stories as well every memorial day every family picnic so they know stories about these women but to write the memoir I still had to look at ancestry DNA I went you know I joined ancestry so that I could look at census documents for example fine the very first woman on the sim side there are three people that always would tell her story. One of them just passed away the day that I finished this manuscript, our cousin Karen. Karen and Terry are a little older than me. They're my cousins, and they were, they spent time with Fine. So they heard specific stories that she told them as young women that Fine never told to, for example, to her own sons. So the way women tell each other's stories is also, I think, absolutely different from the way men tell stories or we tell stories in mixed company so fine the important part about trying to write about her is it took me five years of looking through census documents and marriage records fine had five different names because she was a young black woman every time someone came and asked her her name they spelled it differently then she was married so her last name would have changed it wasn't until and that happens at the end of the book three o'clock in the morning And I changed the spelling of her last name from E-A-L-Y, which is what we were told, to E-L-Y. And she shows up on this 1870 census record from McMinnville, Tennessee. And I got really choked up because she was one year old. And her name was Safina. And she was only ever called fine as in you're fine to work. And her real name was Safina. What do you think is the difference
0: between the way women tell each other stories about themselves versus how they might tell a story to a
2: man? I think most of the time we don't tell men anything. (laughs) Why should we? I mean, I just finished an essay that I was writing in accompaniment to this. There's a lot of sexual violence in this book. And the story of Jenny, you know, shooting that man between the eyes, she was 15 or 16 years old and she was a young black woman. She ran to the front house where the white woman owned the larger part of the brothel. And she would have hung as a young black woman in early 1900s Tulsa Oklahoma and the white woman called law enforcement with whom she had quite a friendly relationship and she went down and helped Jenny drag the body up to the front house and the body was disposed of I think women tell stories about those things to each other in a different kind of detail than they would to a man and I write in here about sexual violence as experienced by me and my friends and a lot of other people and when my daughters read this in manuscript they were kind of appalled. They said, why didn't you ever tell us how hard things were for you when you were younger or for you when we were little and you were a single mom? I said, we just, you talk about that with the women that are your your compatriots. Mm -hmm. So I think there's a way that we tell stories among the women that are our own age, that younger women are telling stories to women their own age. And then there is an intersection when we get old enough and we're willing to share those stories. Mm -hmm. But I don't believe we share them with men in the same way at all. Because we assume that they don't, they can't relate, they don't care. I just... just don't think we do. Yeah, I can't even say why. I wrote this essay called Unsubstantiated because when sometimes when you do tell a man what happened to you, especially if it's a person in authority, then you're asked, well, why were you wearing that or walking there? Or Why did you go to that party? Why did you have perfume on? Why did you drink that beer? I think we're conditioned to not tell things unless we're telling them to someone who's going to believe us. And that's more generally another woman. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. I want to talk about your mother
0: because she has a lot of stories and she
2: also made a journey west. When did she arrive in Riverside? Well, my mom's story is pretty complicated because both my biological father and my mom, neither of them ever wanted to talk about anything. So I remember I was a freshman at USC and I was 17 years old. My mother said I had to come home on the weekends because my stepdad had three laundromats so we had to clean the laundromats and then there was a junkyard and I had to clean the bathroom at the junkyard or we had chores. So I came home on the weekends and I brought this Joan Diddy essay that really changed the way I looked at how to write about where I was from. And I showed it to my mom and it was the famous Some Dreamers of the Golden Dream in which Lucille Miller kills her husband by setting his Volkswagen on fire and pushing it into a lemon grove. So my mother's cleaning the counter and I'm cleaning the counter and she's paying no attention to me because because she didn't get to graduate even from high school. And here I am in college, and I'm 17. And I'm describing this writer, and my mom turns to me and says, oh, your Aunt Beverly lived across the street from Lucille Miller. She always knew she was going to kill someone. Mm -hmm. And that was the end of that. And I thought, oh man, like I really am. this Like I'm this person, you know, like this is where I'm from. But my mom never ever talked about her own childhood or herself until she became much older. That weekend, I had a project to talk about your roots, right? Because roots had just come out like three years earlier. I asked my mother and she said, I don't remember. And I asked my real father and he said, it's none of your damn business. And that was the end of that. So I actually made up a story about them and I got a C, my first C I ever got in my life. I was pissed. (laughs) That's why I thought I'll just write fiction. But my mother finally started telling me all these stories six years ago and they just started pouring out of her. And then my real father, my biological father, They both have memory loss and they started telling all these stories. It was astonishing. My mother's journey was sad because her mother died when she was only nine and her dad married a woman out of, you know, Grimm's fairy tale. Mm. At the same time, trying to write about my step-grandmother, the only grandmother I ever knew because both my grandmothers died when they were in their, one was 30 and one was 50. My step-grandmother brought the family to Canada And then my mom ran away when she was 15 because she was supposed to marry a pig farmer in Oshawa, Ontario, and she was doing crop work and she wanted to go to high school. So her odyssey was really fascinating too. She's really tough and she always had to be tough. And that carried over to how she raised us. So she made her way. She left Oshawa and came to California after her stepmother had brought the family to Fontana to work at Kaiser Steel. In fact, my grandmother was the oldest living member of Kaiser Permanente HMO. She was 96 when she died. She had been head nurse at Kaiser Steel in Fontana. She was the person that took care of the steel workers.
0: You are listening to the LARB Radio Hour, recorded at Emerson College in the heart of Hollywood. We've been speaking with Susan Strait, author of In the Country of Women, We will return to that conversation in just a moment. But first, we have this week's book recommendation.
1: We have Julia Reichert and Stephen Bognar in the studio with us today, and they are here to give us a book recommendation. Julia, you're going to start us off. What book are you going to recommend today?
0: I might recommend a couple. I picked up a copy, a very old copy of *Their Eyes Were Watching God* by Zora Neale Hurston, which I always thought, "Oh yeah, i sort of know what that's about." And I decided, you know, I'm just going to read it. And you know, it's a fantastic book. So I totally recommend that. Another one is *The Underground Railroad*. By Colson Whitehead, <laughs> wonderfully imaginative beautifully written very engrossing fantastic book and I understand he's got a new one out right now
1: yeah and uh, I would recommend The Warmth of Other Suns by Isabel Wilkerson okay every American should read that book 100% it's about the great migration from the south that populated African American communities across the north a profound book and of course The New Jim Crow if we want to understand contemporary America and mass incarceration The New Jim Crow by Michelle Alexander is essential reading I totally agree with both of those. Well, that gives us a lot to do. Julia and Stephen, would you repeat the names for the book and the authors?
0: Their Eyes Were Watching God by Zora Neale Hurston and Underground Railroad by Colson Whitehead. Okay.
1: And the other two? The Warmth of Other Suns by Isabel Wilkerson, The New Jim Crow by Michelle Alexander. Fantastic. Fantastic. Thank you so much. We've been speaking with Julia Reichert and Stephen Bognar. Their latest film is called American Factory, and they were here to give us some book recommendations. Thank you, Julia and Stephen.
0: Thank you. Oh, you're welcome, India. You are listening to the LARB Radio Hour. We now return to our conversation with Susan Strait, author most recently of In the Country of Women. I want to go back to the Joan Didion a little bit later, but I just wanted just to continue talking about your mom. I was surprised that you mentioned that she that she took on foster children mm-hmm. because she was a single mother for some of her. She remarried, but... She was single for nine months. Okay.
2: That's not <laughs> that long. But still, she had a lot of kids. She she worked. I mean... When she married my stepdad, she didn't have to work anymore. And that's when she brought home foster kids.
0: Okay. There's also the portrait of her as, as kind of someone who wanted more for herself. Um, someone who was an artist who drew and then once she had children packed that away and uh, was always very encouraging of you uh, you know to maybe in a uh, harsh way you know talking down your looks putting emphasis on your on your brains it seems like she took on quite a lot but there's a feeling maybe she wanted a different type
2: of life or yeah one time we were all in the car five of us you know like five kids and five in a row, like five, four, three, two, one. I started reading the newspaper when I was about seven and I always read Ann Landers first. That's what you read back then. You were fascinated by women who would write into Ann Landers about love and Ann Landers had all those things like wake up and smell the coffee, honey. Mm-hmm. And my mom didn't drink coffee. So I was always so confused. So I looked at Ann Landers every day trying to figure out the world. And when I was about 10, we were all in the station wagon And I remember I said to my mom, Ann Landers today had this question where she asked if women were happy that they'd had kids or sorry that they had kids, which one are you? And she said, I wish I'd never had kids. And I was sitting in the front seat of the station wagon with her. And you know, there's four other kids in the back. That's how she felt, but that's how she felt that day. And I would say that my mom was really sort of determined to make herself a better person. And she had come up so poor. And when she got here, the family, my grandparents, they lived in a trailer, in a trailer court in Fontana. And my grandmother's working at Kaiser Steel. And my mom said she would never live in a trailer. It was a travel trailer, not a mobile home, Mm -hmm. an 18 foot travel trailer. And they lived there for, you know, three years. And my mom went and got a room in a boarding house and her stuff got stolen every night but she learned to speak perfect English from listening to Vin Scully do Dodger broadcasts. And that is such an iconic Southern California story. I mean, here we are in Hollywood sitting right now and you could ask anyone within a 10 block radius and someone's parents would have learned to speak English from listening to Vin Scully, no matter where they came from. So I love that she was so determined to do that. But at the same time, I was the oldest of five and I was a girl. She was hard. She told me when I was 14 that I was ugly and that no one would ever want to marry me and that I should use my brains and not sell drugs like my friends. And my <laughs> friends were all selling drugs when we were 15. So that was her deal. And when I tell her about it now, she just laughs and says, Well, it worked, didn't it? And my children are appalled because I always say, Yeah, you guys are really smart, but you look okay. Let's go to Target and get good clothes. And my mom just she, we, we, she made our clothes. I, she taught me to sew. I had to make my own clothes. I had to knit, embroider, and crochet. I had to learn to knit socks. It was Riverside. It was like 120 yeah. in the in August, and I'm knitting socks. And I'm like, what? I'm, I don't understand what's happening here. Why am I doing this? And she said, well, I always had to darn my brother's socks. And I'm like, yeah, I don't, I don't have to do that. They're wearing tube socks. <laughs> <laughs> but right. she wanted me to do it because she had done it. Mm-hmm. I find that fascinating. And weird.
0: Right. But but I think what maybe speaks to her character is that she didn't hold you back from doing the things that she hadn't done. Well, that's because I left at
2: 17 and I've never lived at home since. Okay. Well, there you go. Yeah, She's a very interesting woman, but we were of the generation. We joked. We were joking about that at Family Reunion. When we were coming up, your parents literally said to you, the day you turn 18, I don't have to pay for you anymore. And we all left home. Like, it didn't matter whether you were in college or not. All my friends... We all had crappy apartments when we were 18. No one can afford to do that now. We went and got like a room or you lived like three three people in a in a crappy apartment. It is much harder now for, for parents to say that to their children.
0: Right. Uh, something that the book returns to um, is, you know, you're contrasting these stories of these women who made these long journeys to come West and then you who have lived um, most of your life in Riverside. And I, I think there's, I can't, there seems to be, you know, at least you're reflecting on that as being the person who didn't leave, who has stayed, and and feeling at times not very heroic about that. And I think that comes back to the Joan Didion, you know, of an outsider writing, like the, there's that line that I love, or I guess it's from the Bible, I was trying to find a attribute, like you can't be a prophet in your hometown, where it, it can be harder to stay somewhere and see it clearly. But then when you have an outsider you know, saying things about it that that maybe don't apply to you, that can be a drive to, to to then want to describe it. So I'm wondering, in the process of this book, or just in other, I know you've written about this Didian essay like b- before. Like, if you see staying uh, any in in a different way than you did before, like, is, is there could there be any heroic quality to to staying put as like a defender of a place or inscriber of, of the way things were, you know,
2: seeing something evolve, um, over a a long term. It's far simpler than that. I went to graduate school when I was really young. I was, I was 22 and I was married and then I finished graduate school and we were poor and it was really cold there in Amherst. Mm -hmm. And my husband wrecked the car at Christmas Eve, driving on black ice. And he was joking with everybody. Our friends, you know, I'm a black man. Black Ice doesn't want to hurt me. And then he wrecked the car, and then we didn't have a car. He was working at a juvenile correctional facility. We bought a car for $500. When I graduated, we had to come home. I mean, we needed that safety net. People like us, if you go out into the world, there's no one there to help you. And this was 1983. When we came back, he was looking for a job, and there was an ad in the Riverside Press Enterprise security guard wanted white only. Mm-hmm. It was 1983. You, you came back, if, if, if you were us, you came back to your family so that you would survive. So we didn't think about it in that way. We drove back across the country in a $500 used Renault that broke down every day. And it was really funny because I wanted to go to Lorraine, Ohio, to um, to see the where Toni Morrison wrote about. So we had stopped in Norristown, Pennsylvania, where a friend of mine lived. And I got to think a lot about Pete Dexter's work. I was already such a book nerd. Then we went through West Virginia and I got to think about Breece DJ Pancake's work. So the whole way I'm telling my husband about all these stories. So every day we're driving, hoping the car won't break down. And I'm telling him stories about novels. Mm -hmm. We get to Lorraine and I tell him about Sula. That was my choice. We continued on. The car broke down when we pulled in front of my parents' house. And We didn't even have a car or jobs. So we got both of those things. We lived in a one-bedroom apartment and it never occurred to us to leave because it was too frightening to be without our family network. Mm -hmm. But we were also fully cognizant of the fact that all these women and men had journeyed west to what was considered the promised land. Southern California was the promised land and we didn't have any intention of leaving because we were told that this was the promised land and we felt that way about it. Mm-hmm. I mean, it wasn't easy. It was right in the middle of the first great recession and everyone got laid off from Kaiser Steel. Kaiser, we had six family members laid off from Kaiser Steel and Kaiser Steel was dismantled and sold to China and employment was 10%. Still, it never would occur to you to leave because somebody would have lemons and somebody would have slaughter a pig and you could always survive with your family. Then when I started writing this book and I was saying what, what you were, know referring to like all these women traveled these thousands of miles and I live within a mile of where I was born it was because I loved it like there are those of us who write about home and I'm thinking of all these writers I mean Toni Morrison passed away last night and Sula plays a huge part in this book I mentioned Sula at least four times as sort of this totem for how I decided to live my life when I was 12 and she writes so deeply about place Already in my heart, I knew I would always want to write about this place long before I read Joan Didion. What I learned from Joan Didion was her prose was so beautiful and so precise. I learned about metaphor and imagery reading Toni Morrison, Joan Didion, uh, Joyce Carol Oates. Toni K. Bambara taught me about voice. James Baldwin, who ended up um, being my teacher, taught me how to like form a character and make a person work through dialogue. So I didn't ever think about it until people started saying to me, like, wait, you're from here? Mm -hmm. Everyone I know, I've known since, you know, I was five. So I like that part. And I think every year I drive across America with my dog and I go all the way to Eastern Canada where my stepdad's from. I just got back on Friday and I meet people everywhere. Walcott, Iowa this time, uh, Peru, Illinois, Kearney, Nebraska. I spent some time in St. George, Utah everyone I met was from the place where I was and they all talked about why they stayed. So I'm quite mm-hmm. fascinated with how Americans were more mobile in the past and maybe a little less mobile now.
0: And at the same time, when you were in graduate school, the way you depicted California, it sounds like people weren't comfortable with that or they didn't like, you You talk about being in a class and you know everyone's saying, why aren't
2: you writing about surfers? Um, oh, right. Well, because yeah, I showed up at UMass Amherst, and everyone said, no one was from California at all. And people said, well, why aren't you writing about Hollywood and surfing? And I was like, because I live in Riverside. Like, we don't have water. <laughs> right, <laughs> How are we supposed to surf? And and so the things I was writing about when I was 22 were gun violence and my husband being shot at or, or threatened by policemen. And I was writing about that in in 1982 and 1983, and nobody wanted to hear it back then. Now people are are more open and receptive to it. But when I was writing those stories, people said, why are there helicopters in this story? Why are you being so dramatic? And I was like, there's always helicopters over our house at night. Right. And they're like, that can't be true. You're making that up. You don't live in Saigon. And I'm, I'm stunned because I'm thinking, why are you saying that what I'm writing about is not true? And I'm reading your story about Manhattan and you're talking about doing cocaine you know, in a club and you're reading Jay McInerney and I'm supposed to believe that that is true, but you can't believe that I have helicopters shining the light into the bedroom and that's what wakes you up. Mm -hmm. I
0: found that quite fascinating. Uh, Do you think that's changed like significantly in in fiction now? Like the way the reception to your novels?
2: I mean, it wasn't that my novels weren't received while I was, this was just what, in your this was in my like writing cohort. And then when I came home, I published my first book when I was 28, and I had my first kid. When I was, I was 27, first book and first kid. And no, everyone was glad that I was writing about our Southern California, the one that we grew up in. So that's always been lovely and always been wonderful. But it was just that moment where I was on the East Coast, and that still does happen on the East Coast. And people will say, "Well, it's different out there in California when someone's shot," and they'll say, "It's nicer out there. You all have yards." And I have had to say to them. When our nephew gets shot in the driveway, it doesn't matter that there's a palm tree overhead and they say things like, well, it's a little tougher on the East Coast. And I think that's interesting because when someone dies here, we feel exactly the same way as someone in Chicago or New York.
0: There's a line in the book where you say that had you had sons, um, everything would have been completely different. And I wonder if if part of what you're referring to is is living with that constant fear of of violence. That's not, it's a different kind of violence, perhaps that you worry about, you know, with women.
2: No, Um, I didn't let my daughter go get gas at 11 o'clock last night at the gas station, because now I'm afraid she's going to get shot because she's a black woman. Right. No, I didn't have sons. And I said it would have been different because we were a pack of four women in our house. And having a boy inside changes everything. But we have a giant family and a million nephews. And I mean, all the men in our family, including my brother who died very young, have had pretty rough lives and there's been nothing but guns and violence. Being a mom of three daughters meant that I was constantly worried for their boyfriends or their husbands. In the same way that I still have to say, my ex-husband will call me and say, oh, he works for a, an auto auction company. So he's driving all over Southern California to deliver cars. And he'll call me and say, oh, I'm in San Bernardino or I'm in Long Beach. I hope I'm okay today. That's now. But yeah, last night was was really something. I was to say to my 28 year old, no, let's, let's not go out. And I don't want you going out and getting gas. Not with the way things are right now. Mm-hmm. We'll do it in the morning when the sun comes up. And we just looked at each other. We were a little stunned, both of us in the kitchen. What was it like for you to work on
0: this book and, and go through these stories, you know, in contrast to the headlines and just this feeling of um, kind of this latent tension just erupting um, ra- racial tension, discrimination, you know, kind of intense income disparity. I mean, all these things that you write about are so much also in the news. Did that concurrence shape the way you wrote the book at all or just something you've been writing about for a long time?
2: I have been writing about it for my whole life, but when I published essays in the late 80s and early 90s about being a single mom or about our family, about, you know, I used to write commentaries for NPRs, All Things Considered, about my ex-husband and I buying a car together for our kids or raising chickens or me doing their hair. That was a different time when we were writing about motherhood in a different way. I feel like If I had published this book 10 years ago, when Barack Obama was president, things would have been much different. My father-in-law died three weeks before he could have voted for Barack Obama, and that was a big conversation in our house. I feel as if it's more important to write about this now, because on Saturday when we were there at Vermont Park, you know, there were 150 of us, and 60 of us were under the age of 30. We have big families and I have great, great nieces and nephews and I'm 58. So it's even more important to talk about what does home mean and who are your people and who are going to take care of you. But our family is so representative to me of what America is. And three of my nephews are married to Mexican-American women. One of my nephews is Samoan, Mexican, Irish, and Black. Our other niece is half Haitian. It's just, it, it's this huge family where everyone looks like everything. And I was the only white person there on Saturday, which everyone was joking, because I used to have one other uh, sister-in-law who was white, and she passed away, and we miss her always. So I think for the rest of America to see a family that looks like ours and to think about how women migrated. I mean, my mother didn't, wasn't a citizen when I was born. She had a green card. When I'm teaching at UC Riverside, for example, if I have a class of 400 people, I teach a class called the Mixed Race Novel and the American Experience. I start by standing in front of them looking like this, and I say, how many people in here uh, have parents who were born outside the country? And I raise my hand too. And everyone looks at me and I say, how many people have parents who were not citizens when they were born? And I raise my hand. And I'll never forget, one student was like, Professor Strait, I thought you were white. I am. And that's why we're talking about it. And then when I ask how many of you have parents that were not able to graduate from high school, and I raise my hand, it changes the entire tenor of the first day and the whole rest of the 10 weeks because they're like, you're a distinguished professor and your parents didn't graduate from high school. And I said, that's right. And my mom had a green card when she had me. She met my stepfather in citizenship class. So everything changes. And maybe it's even more important for us to say these things right now and for there to be a book about migrations and um, also internal migration. Now that we're talking about immigration, let's not forget that Fine and Callie and Jenny and Daisy migrated from Sunflower County, Mississippi to avoid being killed or Memphis, Tennessee to avoid being sold into slavery. Well, Susan, thank you so much for coming and
0: talking with us today. It was a pleasure. Thanks for the close reading. Yeah. We've been speaking with Susan Strait, author most recently of In the Country of Women, which is a memoir. You've been listening to the LARB Radio Hour. Subscribe to our podcast in iTunes, SoundCloud, and Stitcher. If you like the show, leave us a comment and tell us what you think. The LARP Radio Hour's executive producers are Eric Newman, Medea Ocher, and Kate Wolf. Our engineer is William Broughton. Production assistance is provided by William Broughton, Eleanor Duke, Lauren Kinney, and Jake Levins. Our theme song is by composer Imogen Teasley. Special thanks to Alan Minsky, who is no one's moral conscience, for production assistance, and to Emerson College for the use of their studio in Hollywood. Tom Lutz is the publisher and editor-in-chief of the Los Angeles Review of Books. This episode of the LARB Radio Hour is supported in part by the California Arts Council, a state agency. Learn more at www.arts.ca.gov. Any findings, opinions or conclusions contained herein are not necessarily those of the California Arts Council.